Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus. The Old Testament book of Exodus in Exodus in chapter number 14. Exodus and chapter number 14. Now we've been following through the life and ministry of Moses and we watched as God has worked in his early life and watched him as God called him at 80 years old to follow after him to be obedient, to be used as from God as an instrument and that we observed as God rained down the 10 plagues upon Egypt and we explained why in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12 it spoke about how God had done this to prove that he was God over all of the other Egyptian gods and we took time to explain this then we saw the last plague uh, and the Passover lamb and we saw how God had sent a destroying spirit, but everyone who had the blood on the post that God would pass over them. And then we watched as the Egyptians begged the people to leave and they gave them jewels, jewelry, they gave them gold, they gave them animals, they did just get out of here. And now the Israelites are on the march. With this, if you don't mind, take your copy of the word of God and turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter number 14. Exodus chapter 14, and notice with me starting at verse 1. Exodus 14 and verse 1, the word of God says this. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pihitharoth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal Zephon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all of his hosts. And the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And it was told the king of Egypt, that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and the captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with a high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh. And his horsemen and his army. And overtook them encamping by the sea beside Pihiroth before Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. But lift up thy rod, and stretch out thy hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow after them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all of his hosts, and upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh and upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the angel of the Lord, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came, to, came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and darkness to them. But it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand, and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And it came to pass in the morning watch, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud, and troubled the host of the Egyptians, and took off their chariot wheels, and they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thy hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, and upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. And there remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Lord saved Israel that day of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw a great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord 
and as Moses, his servant, Moses. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, will you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Exodus chapter number 14? The book of Exodus chapter 14, and notice with me, in verse number 13, where it says, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And with the Lord's help, we want to preach this message all about God to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And again, I'm thankful that this is historical truth, not a fairy tale, not something that was made up. It's evidence that you are God and that there is none else. And I'm excited to preach this, something talking about the magnificent power of God. I'm so excited, but I don't want to fall into the trap that I get so excited that I try to preach this myself. That if it's my words and my thoughts, it'll do these folks no good. So the best I know how, I surrender myself to you. I give you my thoughts, my words, my ambitions, my goals, my desires. I set them aside. And I ask that you fill me with your precious spirit. So that way you can show yourself real to these good folks here. That you can show them that you are God. Without a doubt that we can know you. Help us to be able to stand still and watch you work. Even now. And in your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we come to this, what an amazing story. Again, this is one of the biggest miracles to ever happen in history. It's such a big miracle that people are still talking about it today. Even non-church people have heard the story of the parting of the Red Sea. It's made uh, a part of a culture. You even see people use that as a reference, that they part it like the sea. This is such a big miracle. Such a major miracle that all the world was able to hear and to see what God has done. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to open up this book of Exodus. And I want to show you some things. And the first thing I want to show you is Pharaoh's chasing of the land. Pharaoh's chasing of the land. Now, with here, I want to show you a couple different specific maps I want to try to encourage you a little bit because there is some teaching about the Red, uh, this parting of the Red Sea that I want to make sure that you have in your mind. Now, at the back of your Bible, most of you have maps, but I provided one for you here. I want you to see some of the things here so we can be on the same page. What we have here is a picture of Egypt and specifically on the Sinai Peninsula. What we have here is that we have Goshen, which would be at the top, a land that was rich and flush. And it's where Joseph had settled, brought his family, and those 70 people had multiplied to two and a half million people in the land of Goshen. Then we have the Red Sea. The Red Sea is a major body of water that would separate Africa from Asia. And the Red Sea is part, has two arms to it. We have the Gulf of Suez. That's part of the Red Sea. And then we have the Gulf of Aquaba. This is another arm of the Red Sea. And in between that, we would have the Sinai Peninsula, which at this time was very much influenced and pretty much belonged to the Egyptians. 
Then on the other side, we would have the land of Midian. Now, Midian is very important because remember, this is where Moses had spent 40 years working on the backside of the desert. This is where Mount Sinai was at. This is where the burning bush would be at. Now, this is important because we want to understand these things. Now, there are three theories of the Red Sea crossing. The very first theory would be the Reed Sea theory. And the Reed Sea theory comes from the Bible deniers that say that there's no such thing as miracles, and so they want to explain things away. And so in the Reed Sea theory, they have the idea that they would start in the land of Goshen, and that they would start going on the way of the sea, and they went all the way north, and they went into some marsh lands. And so here they say, well, some scholar didn't get enough Starbucks coffee. And instead of writing the Red Sea, he wrote the Reed, he was supposed to write the Reed Sea. Now, the Reed Sea is interesting because it is only ankle deep water. And so their explanation is that there was a nice wind and it dried up everything. And so there was no problem for these people to walk here. Well, what they don't realize is that they have to provide a bigger miracle. How did Pharaoh and all of his horses drown in ankle deep water? Well, that would be an issue. And so what they do is they try to deny the miracles of the Bible and they make it more complicated for themselves. And so this is one theory that's out there. This is something we would reject. But you could see some Bible maps that you may have as they show the Red Sea crossing. They would show them going way north and that's because they have them going towards what is called the Reed Sea. Now, the second theory is a very popular theory, maybe a little bit more mainstream, which would be going through the Gulf of Suez, which would be the Red Sea. I have less problems with this, except that it doesn't match Scripture. And so the uh, Gulf of Suez crossing carries them going to Goshen, and as they get ready to leave uh, Egypt, they head north, then they turn deeper into Egypt. So instead of getting away, they go deeper into the land, which doesn't make sense. And then they get caught in the middle of Egypt, and then they have to cross the Red Sea. Now, the reason why this theory is popular is because years ago, centuries ago, the Catholics decided that they needed a new tourist attraction. And so some pope wanted to make a church for his mother, St. Catherine. And so he found a mountain and said, this has got to be a Mount Sinai. And so he built a monastery and put it right in the middle of what we would call the Sinai Peninsula. And here's Mount Sinai. That's why Sinai Peninsula is named this way. And it has no evidence whatsoever that this was ever the Mount of God. But in order to have Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula... You would have to cross the Red Sea this way. So you'd have some Bible maps that go this way. But it doesn't match up with what the scriptures say. Because they would have to go deeper into the land. By the way, after the seven years or seven day war that happened in the 1900s. Where all the Arabic countries decided to fight against Israel. And God protected Israel. And seven days it beat up everybody around them. That they technically had ownership of the Sinai Peninsula. And the Hebrew archaeologist scholars scoured the entire Sinai Peninsula looking for Mount Sinai. And they didn't find anything. Now because all the Christians said this is where it's at. They all examined it and said, see it's not true. There's no evidence of Mount Sinai whatsoever. And so it allowed people to disbelieve this account even more. Because there was no evidence of it. But there's always evidence. 
Which would bring us to the Gulf of Aqaba and may I say the biblical theory of the Red Sea crossing. Now what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to encourage your faith. I'm trying to let you see on a map. We're talking about historical places and for you to be encouraged. And so here we of course would have the land of Goshen and we'd have the Gulf of Aqaba. Now the Bible says in the chapter before at the end in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines. Although that was near. For God said lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up harnessed out to the land of Egypt. So what it's talking about is that there's a normal travel route. That would lead through the land of the Philistines. Which would be the coast of the promised land. And in this route it would only take 11 to 14 days to walk and to travel. And God says, no, we're not going to take the ease away because we don't want them when they get discouraged to say, forget it and turn around and go back. I want to take them through a way that they have to see that I am God and they have no choice. They cannot turn back. You understand that's an element of faith. If we have a safety net, when things get hard, we go back. But sometimes God wants us to hang out in the branch Where if it falls, (laughs) there's no safety net. It has to be God that protects us. And this is what God has done. He said, I'm going to bring them a different way than the normal traveling route. And so what he does is he brings them out of Egypt proper. They can't go back into Egypt. He brings them out of Egypt proper. Then he says, turn into the land. And so they turn into the land. Now, they say nobody asked for directions. Nobody stopped at the convenience store. They're just following God in the cloud of fire. And they turn into the land. Now they're turned into a peninsula where they cannot get out. They're stuck. And we could see in our text where Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. So God turns them into the Sinai Peninsula. And Pharaoh says, them idiots... They got lost. Now they're stuck. You know what? Why would we let them go in the first place? Since they're stuck in the land. Since they can't. Let's go get them back. And so they gather up all the horses. And they gather up all the chariots. And they go after them. And so now they're stuck in the Sinai Peninsula. But God is not stuck. And he brings them over to the Red Sea. To the land of Midian. Now that's important. Because the land of Midian. Is where this Mount Sinai is at. This is where Moses was working. Moses was not working in the Sinai Peninsula. We could go back in the ancient world and actually find Midian on a map. And it's not in the Sinai Peninsula. It's on the other side in what we would call Saudi Arabia to where Mount Sinai is. By the way, that is in Saudi Arabia. And there is a mountain that's all burnt at the top and has the descriptions of Mount Sinai. That the Saudi Arabians say, nope, nope, nothing to see here. And they put a chain link fence And it's guarded. And they won't let anybody near it. Why? Because they're a Muslim country. And they don't want people to believe that the Bible is true. That would go against them. And so they forbid. In fact there's some people that have risked their lives. Foolishly in my opinion. That tried to sneak past the gates. And got some footage. It's on YouTube and whatnot To show some pictures of the uh, Mount Sinai. And the evidence of where it's at. And some of the description. But there's no evidence of it anywhere in Sinai Peninsula. Now you say. What does this prove? Nothing. 
I'm just trying to get you to see in your minds the map course. And I want you to be encouraged that we could see on a map and find the course and be encouraged that our God is real. Now with this, let's go back to the Bible. That was just the fun portion of it. Let's go back to the Bible, if you don't mind. And the first thing I want to show you is that Pharaoh uh, chasing the land. Pharaoh chasing the land. So they had this well-traveled path that everyone knew about that would travel from Egypt up to uh, the Europe, Asia area, go through the land of the Philistines. It would only take 14 days. But God had them turn into the land and now they're stuck. But you know, God had a plan for this. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in the book of Exodus chapter 14. And notice with me in verse number 4. Uh, verse number 3 for a running start. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And I, now remember God is speaking here, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he will follow them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all of his hosts that all the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. All throughout this passage, you're going to see this phrase that I am the Lord. What God is doing here is to let the entire world know there is a God. And he is going to perform it by one of the most major miracles that have ever occurred. And he's going to do it such a way that as the water is falling upon Pharaoh and his host, they're going, God was right. God's fighting for the Hebrew people. God's real. Even after all this time, remember when Moses first stopped up to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, who is this God that I should obey him? God says, I'm finally going to answer that question to him, that he knows exactly who I am and the reason why he should have obeyed me in the first place. And so we could see this here. Notice as it goes on, if you don't mind. <laughs> And at verse number 5, it was told to the king of Egypt. And so he gathered up all of his chariots, verse 6, verse 7. And God hardened the heart and he's just determined. But what God does is as the Egyptians come, the people look at the Egyptians and they start freaking out. Oh no, what are we going to, we're stuck. And they start complaining. Moses, why'd you bring us here? You just brought us out here to die. We told you you were up to no good. Isn't that typical of us that when we get backed into a corner and we start crying and yelling everyone near us and blaming everyone, blaming God. But God had never lost being in control. God was in control all the time. You understand that even if you're not in control, God is in control. Sometimes we say, I don't know what's going to happen. Why did I get put in here? And God says, I know exactly what I was doing. This isn't an accident. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm doing this to bring glory to my name because I am God and there is none else. So we could see this. And what God did, notice with me in verse number nine. But the Egyptians pursued after them and all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army. And he overtook them by a camping, uh, encamping by the sea, by Pilharoth, before Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they cried out to Moses, because there are no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore, thou, or wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us, to carry us forth out of Egypt? 
Is this not the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. So here we have the scenario. Pharaoh and his army has surrounded them. They had the Red Sea at their backs. There's nowhere to run. There's no help. They're in the middle of the desert. And they're saying, what's going to happen? They're at the place of total helplessness. You know, that's where God puts us sometimes. To prove to us that he could do the impossible with God. All things are possible. And so what's going to happen here? We see the next thing here. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. Notice with me in verse 13. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will do show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. What we're seeing here is something called waiting on God. Waiting on God. You know that waiting on God is the ultimate form of worship? Waiting on God is the ultimate form of worship. That means you trust Him. That you're able to say, I know God can work. It's at the place where you surrender yourself and say, God, I trust Him. Now, waiting is something we all hate to do. We love to do something. We like to be in control. We like to force our way. You understand, you're going to live your life one of two ways. You're going to live your life by faith, or you're going to live your life by force. Do you know that you can learn a lot of good stuff by toys? You guys remember this when you were a kid, this little ball here, red and blue, and it has all these different shapes. Do you know that you could put different shapes in different holes? Now, it doesn't always come easy, but you could force yourself. I got a little circle shape. You know that I could put it through a square hole. Now, it doesn't automatically go in, but if I put enough force and if I put enough pressure, I could get it to go in. Now, you can live your life by force. You can live your life forcing it to work, conniving, manipulating, try, con, uh, stepping on people, forcing it to happen. But that's not the best life. That's a life full of frustration. That's a life where you're living that you are trying to be in control. But God says, stand still. Stand still. He says, I will fight for you. This is an idea that the Bible develops later, explaining us to wait on Him. Can you trust God? Can you allow Him to work? This is called the faith life, meaning that we're trusting God to do His work. You know, you, we have this everywhere we go. For example, you go outside at the end of church and one of your tires is flat kick it and be all frustrated with it because it's broken up your plans I had plans and you're all so frustrated that it just broke up but you know it could have been that the mechanic who comes to help with their car or maybe someone who comes to help you needs a track needs to see the love of God and God's allowed them to come in your path for the purpose that he had a plan and yet we're so frustrated and so thing that we miss that opportunity because we're just looking at ourselves. Maybe we have a loved one. That everything we've tried. 
hasn't worked. And they still refuse to trust God. And their life is so horrible. And we've beat them over the head with the Bible. And we've yelled at them. And we've called them names. And we're so frustrated. What about saying, God, I take my hands off and I allow you to work in their life. You know, God could do a lot better job of working on someone's life than we can. And yet we live our life so frustrated all the time because we want to get it done. We want it to happen. And so we fight. And God says, I'm just waiting on you. I'm waiting for you to finally give up and surrender yourself and allow me to be God. God has never been helpless. God always knew what he was going to do. He was just waiting for us to allow him to do what, to be God. For us to get out of the way and stop messing things up. God is a real God and we can trust him. Now, let me tell you that waiting on God doesn't mean standing still and doing nothing. Notice with me in verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. You understand waiting on God doesn't mean that I just sit down and say, Fine, I'm doing nothing. Waiting on God because you trust him carries the idea that we are obedient to what he's given us to do. So you have a big major prayer. You've got a bill that you brought in and say, I don't know how I'm going to pay this. I can count all my pennies in my piggy bank. I can try to, I, it's not going to happen. So someone may say, you know what? I'm supposed to trust in God. So I just do this and I skip church and not read my Bible. But God's going to take care of it. It's not how it works. Because I believe God is going to take care of it. I'm willing to be obedient. And I stay close to him. I read my Bible. I do everything that God has given me to do, trusting that if I take care of what God has given me to do, he'll take care of those things. So waiting in God is not standing still. It's being obedient to the thing that God has given us to do while we're trusting that he's going to take care of it. This is the faith life. And it's so foreign to so many people because most people, been there, done that, live our life so frustrated. Because we're trying to make it work and things get in our way and things disrupt it. And we just, but God doesn't want us to live that away. And God is a powerful enough God to take care of it. And so what he tells us, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He says, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. Can you Trust him. So what God does is he tells Moses to lift up the rod and stretch out his hand and the sea will be divided and they'll grow on dry land. But he says, guess what? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and I'm going to take care of Pharaoh so he'll never bother you again. And notice in verse number 18 as God repeats this thought again. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh and upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. God says, I'm going to show that I am God and that even Pharaoh, even though he imagines himself to be God, can't do anything about it. And so the angel of the Lord went before the camp of Israel removed. So what had been happening is that they had been following a cloud, a pillar of cloud, and it was a cloud of fire by night so they could see. And wherever it went, they followed after him. Well, what happened is the cloud had been leading the Israelites and it went to the behind the Israelites to block off Pharaoh 
from getting to the Israelites. And he put a blockage. And he put that barrier. So that way Pharaoh, the enemies, could not touch the Israelites during this time. And so we could see that God will fight for them. Which brings us to the last thing here. The waters were divided. Verse number 21. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back by an east wind all that night. And made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. So Moses stretched out his hand and the waters were divided. Now, most of the time, most of the theology we get about Moses comes from television. You've watched the special Charleston Heston and Moses and the Ten Commandments. And sometimes we get those things and they get in our head, but they're not biblical. Now, what we have here is two and a half million Hebrew people, plus all of their animals, their livestock, their carriages, everything. There's a lot of things here. Two and a half million people. In order to get two and a half million people all the way across the Red Sea overnight, and we have the time frame, it's overnight, the waters of the Red Sea had to be parted for five miles. So it wasn't just a narrow stretch. It was five miles. This part of the Red Sea was parted for five miles. Miles, And in order to get all two and a half million people with all of their stuff over overnight, they had to cross with 5,000 people abreast. Meaning a huge line of 5,000 people marching forward, two and a half million of them to get them all over overnight. You understand, this isn't a replicated miracle. I've watched so many specials where people try to put a model and put the... the uh, topography of it and they blow a fan and look at the water it's partying because of the fan but this went not just a little bit five miles can you imagine how high that water would be that wall of water and to walk across this dry land this riverbed and God allowed it to be dry, to allow the wagons to go through and not get stuck, and not to have to pull them through, to allow the horses to tromp through without getting sinking down into the sand. He had dried this up. What a major miracle that he did. You said, explain it, preacher. I cannot. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a miracle. You said, now, you're one of those Christian people. You just need to get educated. Let me tell you. I consider myself a scientist. I worked in the laboratory field for many years, studied viruses. Um, <laughs> I have a little bit of a science background, and I still believe this. I still believe this. And so it's not the idea that I have to get more educated and I'll deny the Bible. In fact, the more that I study science, the more I study things, the more I believe that this is true. Because our God is real. And He is able to do such things. And He parted this, and He made it... So they could go across and get over overnight. And so they cross. Notice as the Bible gives us a timeline in uh, <coughs> verse number 23. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them to the midst of the sea, even all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. Now remember, still dividing them is this pillar of cloud. That's still in between them. And so it begins to move. And Pharaoh's forces say, all right, we'll follow in through. And so here's Pharaoh's forces with wall of water around them. And the pillar in front of them. They're getting caged in and they don't even know it. 
And so they begin to go through. Notice as it gives us the time frame of this. Verse number 24. And it came to pass in the morning watch. The morning watch was between 3 to 6 a.m. So at 3 to 6 a.m. The children of Israel are finishing crossing. Uh, the, the chariots of Egypt are following through. It's early morning. Dawn hasn't broken yet. They're going through in the middle of the night. And God says, all right, I got you where I want you. And then you know what he did? Verse number 24, and it came to pass in the morning watch, the Lord looked unto the host of Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that they drive them heavily. So the Egyptians said, let us flee in the face of Israel for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. Now at this time, the Egyptian chariots were some of the most powerful forces. But previously before, they had a big fight in what was called Qatar against the Egyptians versus the Hittites, which was the largest chariot battle in all of history. So they were known for their chariots. These were people who knew how to warfare in them, know how to ride them. And yet they're going through here and all of a sudden God's allowing their wheels to fall off. Now, instead of riding the chariots, they're going on foot. They're looking here and they don't have any way of escape. And they go, we're in trouble now. Now that their chariots are broken, it's not like they could retreat. They're stuck in the middle of the Red Sea. And if it collapses on them, there's nowhere to go. When their chariot wheels fell off, everything's falling apart. They're now on foot. They look up and say, you know what? I think God's fighting for them. I think their God is real. And with their last time on earth, they know there's a God. Notice as the Bible continues on, verse number 25, and took off their chariot wheels and they drave them heavily so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel. Why? For the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. Isn't that what God said he was going to do? He said he was going to fight for them, for them to be still, that God has this all handled. God was not panicked at any time. God was in control the entire time. And verse 26, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out thy hand over the sea, and the waters may come upon the Egyptians, and upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. So as the dawn began to break, God had Moses stretch out his hands, and the waters washed back, recovering that five miles that was spread. Can you imagine what a tidal wave that would be? Can you imagine the Egyptians looking down, knowing this tidal wave was coming in on them, and there was nothing they can do? God had won the battle. Verse 28, And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, and there remained not so much as any of them. But the children of Israel walked on, upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and their left. So it's recapping and saying, let's do a comparison. The Egyptians drowned. The Israelites had no problems whatsoever getting across. God was watching over them. Verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead Upon the seashore. So just in case you need it proof. The Red Sea began to wash up the dead bodies. Upon the shore. On their side. And they go look at this. These are the people. Our enemies. We didn't lift a single finger to defeat them. Our God took care of them. Our God won the battle for us. And all we had to do was just obey what God has given us to do. God 
fought the battle. Can you imagine what encouragement is? Now remember, they had the pillar between them. They could see kind of Pharaoh's army, but they couldn't see what happened. But as they began to wash up to shore, there was no doubt what happened to them. They had the evidence. So because of this, because of the waters parting, because of the Egyptians, their enemies were defeated. How was the response? Verse 31. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians and the people, first of all, feared the Lord. Feared the Lord. Now remember, we explained this idea of fear of the Lord earlier. The fear of the Lord contains so much, but how does someone receive the fear of the Lord? A personal knowledge of God. The more that you know Him, the more that you have an emotional response to Him, which is fear. Someone who says, I don't care about the Lord, it's because they've never met God. They don't have an emotional response to Him. Someone who knew God is running away from God, they have an emotional response because they've run into Him and they know He's real. But for us, there is a fear of the Lord. It does include a trembling. It does include a great respect for Him that we want to honor Him. It includes both of those, but it comes from a personal knowledge of God. Because they know God is real, they now have an emotional response to this God. They feared Him. Notice the second thing here. They believed the Lord. They believed the Lord. You know, God wants you to believe in Him so much that He's willing to do things in your life to grab your attention. He wants to prove to you that He is real. He's able to do so if someone has some false religion. He's able to work on their life and show them that this is not right. God is able to do such a thing where He's able to prove to you. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is John 7, 17. Which says that if any man will do my will, or if any man will do his will, speaking of God, he can know of the doctrine, whether I speak of God or speak of myself. The word know carries the idea to have evidence of. So if any man will do my will, so anyone who's willing to obey what God's telling him to do, he can know, meaning have evidence of, the doctrine or belief or teaching that whether it's of God or whether you speak of Him. Now, I'm a scientist by nature, and so I say, I got a scientific experiment. So if I have someone, I knock on the door, they say, I don't believe in that religion. I believe in science. Well, praise the Lord. Here's a scientific experiment for you. If any man will do my will, he can know of the doctrine, whether I speak of God or whether I speak of myself. I said, what you could do is you could go inside and say, all right, God, this crazy preacher decided to talk to me, and I don't know if you're real or not, but if you're real and you show me that you're real, I'll believe you. You know what God will do? He'll do something in a way that they understood came from God. Not something I manufactured. Something that they knew from God. God knows how to individually speak to us. To bring, to know a knowledge of Him with evidence. What a great God that we have. That there's evidence. I'm glad that our God's not imaginary. He can have evidence. It's amazing what God would do. I've had people in the past come back. I knocked on the door. Didn't think I'd see them again. And they come back and say, you know what? What God did, he showed me Israel. Can you show me more? Be able to open up the Bible and show them a little bit more about who God is and salvation. What a wonderful God that he is. He wants to prove himself. He wants to show you that he's real. There's evidence that he is real. What a great God. And so they feared the Lord. They had an emotional response because of the personal knowledge they had of him. They believed God. They believed that God was able 
that with God all things are possible. After that, I mean, nothing else, everything else is small compared to that deliverance. Notice something else that they did. And his servant Moses, meaning they believed the Lord and they also believed his servant Moses. You know what the preacher was doing? He was trying to say, God's real. God's real. God's real. And when God proved himself real, they said, you know what? This guy is trying to tell us the truth, trying to tell God's real. God's real. There is an idea of the importance of the under-shepherd trying to point people to the Lord. Everyone needs a pastor. Everyone needs a man of God in their life who's going to remind them to look to God. To care for the sheep. To look for them. Not to look out for themselves, but to say, look at God. Look at God. We all need that reminder from time to time. We all get to the place sometimes where we're looking at the circumstances and the circumstances are so big. We need that reminder to look past the circumstances and see the God of the circumstances. To see that God is bigger than anything you'll ever face. God is great. And that was Moses' job just to keep pointing up to the master. To keep pointing up to him. Trust in him. Look at him. But preacher, you don't understand what my problem is. You know what? I may not have a full understanding, but let me tell you. Look at him. Look at him. But preacher, you don't understand how bad he aggravates me, this guy over here. He just, uh, look at him. Look at him. God, my finances. I don't know what I'm going to do. Look at him. Look at him. That's my job. I'm just a cheerleader. Look at him. Look at him. We need that reminder. All of us need that reminder. To look at him. To look at him. Why? Because he's real. We're not trying to sell you an imaginary bag of goods. We're not trying to sell you on a mythology. We're not even trying to give you religion. We're trying to point that there's a real relationship you could have with a real God. Who loves you so very much. And with that. Let me tell you the truth. That up in heaven, heaven is a perfect place. That's why we want to go there. Up in heaven, there's no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears. It's perfect. The problem is, dear friend, is that none of us are perfect. The Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. The Bible is very clear on this. The Bible says, because heaven's a perfect place... That's why I want to go there. But there's something else we have to be reminded of. That the whole reason why heaven is worth going there is because God is there. And that everything that the Bible describes about God is that he is holy, holy, holy. That word holy carries the idea of perfect. So we could say it this way. That God is perfect, perfect, perfect. And none of us are perfect. In fact, God cannot even be in the presence, cannot stand the presence of anything that's sinful in his presence. He cannot. And so God cannot allow anything that's not perfect to go to that perfect place. Maybe I can give an illustration. Let's say that my kids decide they're going to play in the mud. Now, they're teenagers now, but you know, teenagers could even find mud. Let's say that they play in the mud and they got muddy clothes and they take their muddy clothes and put it on a clean pile of clothes my wife just got through washing. What would happen to those clothes? They would be dirty by association. The same thing's true by heaven. If God allows something that's not perfect to go into a perfect heaven, it would ruin it. It would no longer be perfect. How many sins did it take for the Garden of Eden not to be perfect? One. 
And so God's job is to to protect heaven. This is why the Bible says that the qualification to get to heaven is perfection. But all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. How many of you ever thrown darts? Good. You can participate. It's all right. No one's recording you. No one's seeing you. It's just me. All right. So let's say that we're going to throw darts. And say that in order to go to heaven, you have to hit the bullseye each and every time. And so we have one of you line up and you throw and you miss the the center by this much. Someone else throws and they hit the outside edge. Then I come by and I throw and I hit the wall over here. Now, according to the rules, who's going to heaven? Nobody. You see, it doesn't matter if you missed it by this much, if you missed it by this much. If you missed it, you missed it. If you are not perfect, you do not deserve to go to heaven. You said, preacher, you're not giving me any good news. Unfortunately, I've got to deliver even worse news. That when we die, there's only two places to go. A wonderful place called heaven or an awful place called hell. Do you know that God never created hell for a single human to go there? He created hell to punish Satan and his demons. However, man goes to hell by default because we don't deserve to go to heaven and there's nowhere else to go. Well, that makes sense logically. But it's not good news. The Bible says this in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? A wage is something we earn. For example, when we work, we earn money. That's our wage. That's our reward. That's our payment. That's what we earned because of our actions. The Bible says for the wages of sin. Now, sin is anything that we've done wrong against God. For example, we have the Ten Commandments. The Bible says, thou shalt not bear false witness. The Bible says, don't tell lies. Now, I'm a pastor of a church, and I've told a lie. How many have ever told a lie before? Right? If you're not raising your hand, you're a liar. Right? I mean, we've all told lies. The Bible says in the um, Ten Commandments that we're to honor our father and mother. We could say it this way, to obey your folks. Now, I'm a pastor of a church, but I've disobeyed my folks. How many have ever disobeyed your folks? Now, parents are looking at their kids to make sure that they're raising their hand. Right? We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Now, the Bible says for the wages of sin, because I told a lie, because I've disobeyed my folks, this reward, the payment that I owe God is death. Now, that word death literally carries the idea of separation. For example, if I had a, we had a funeral here, we would have the casket. There'd be a body inside and we would say that person is dead. We would say their body is there, but they're dead because their soul is separated out. There's a separation. The Bible says, because we have sinned, we deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. So instead of being able to go to heaven, the reward, the payment that we owe because of sin is to be separated from God. And there's only one other place to go, and that's an awful place called hell. Now you say, preacher, that's not good news. I know. But here's what the good news is, is that God didn't want to see a single person go to that awful place called hell. So you know what God did is he robed himself in flesh and came down on this earth and lived the same life that you and I lived as the Lord Jesus Christ. He went through the same temptations, the same troubles and the same heartbreaks. Then he died on the cross to pay for your sins and for mine. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Jesus said it's a gift. What's a gift? If I was to hand you a birthday gift, for you to receive it, you didn't have to mow my lawn. You didn't have to pay me money. You didn't have to be nice to me. I just gave it to you. 
Well, the same thing's true about going to heaven. To go to heaven, you don't have to go to church. To go to heaven, you don't have to pay money to the church. To go to heaven, you don't have to help little old ladies cross the street. Now, all those things are good things and things that we ought to do. But those things don't get us to heaven. What gets us to heaven? That Jesus paid my price. And what I personally have to do is give him permission. I accept the terms that Jesus paid for me and I accept what he did for me. I do nothing. Not even My prayer doesn't even save me. Jesus saves me. I'm just trusting him to do the work. Remember, I live my life by faith. I'm standing still and letting him do the work. He fought the battle for me. I just believe what he did for me for myself. That's as easy as it is. God made it so simple that anyone and everyone could go to heaven. I was speaking to someone last night and they were saying, well, you know, this religion says you have to do this. And I just got through talking to these people and they said I had to do all of this. You know, that would be horrible if God said, in order to go to heaven, you have to go do this great quest. Not everyone could do that. If God said, in order to go to heaven, you have to give a million dollars, none of us would make it. If you can, then I want to meet you. No. So you understand, God made it so simple that each and every person can make it to go to heaven. He wants you to go that much, he just gave it to you. And all you have to do is receive it. That's why John 3.16 is one of the most precious verses in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Or go to that awful place called hell. But have everlasting life. You know what my, the whole purpose of me taking time to do that for? It's because my job is to point you to him. And I want to let you know that there's a God in heaven who loves you so much. And he's willing to prove himself to you. But his ultimate thing is he wants you to trust him for forgiveness of all of your sins. That you can't do it yourself and you don't deserve it. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot fight your way to heaven. You can't manipulate or anything. But you can stand still and watch God do the fight for you. And just accept what he has done for you. Believe in him. Can you imagine some Hebrew person says, Oh, I don't want to trust God. I could do it myself. I'm going to go back to the other side of the sea. And I'm going to do it again myself. Well, that doesn't work. God's already done the work. Just allow him to do the work for you. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three oh eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three oh eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. 
we would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.